You think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. Hi, I'm Emily of Code Pink, and welcome to the Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. The past few weeks have been marred by violence and loss. The murder of eight people in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as increasing violence and acts of hate against the Asian and Pacific Islander communities have mobilized people across the nation to take to the streets and call out anti-Asian hate and violence. Part of being an advocate for justice and peace includes educating ourselves on the history of this U.S. aggression against other nations, including China. So today, we'll be hearing more about the Cold War specifically how the U.S. uses military violence against other nations, as well as propaganda to suppress truth and control narratives that perpetuate U.S. power. The segments we're sharing today are from the Cold War Truth Commission, held on March 21, 2021. This 10-hour-long event was organized by Rachel Brunke of Witness for Peace, Frank Dorrell, the publisher of Addicted to War, and Code Pink, and features testimony from over 40 activists, scholars, and creators. If you'd like to watch the full Cold War Truth Commission or learn more about the Cold War, please visit www.codepink.org slash Cold War Truth. Ramsey Clark was the Attorney General of the United States under LBJ. After he left that position, he went to Vietnam, saw what the U.S. was doing there, and became an anti-war activist. Ramsey has traveled all over the world, witnessing what the United States has been doing to people in poor countries, and killing millions of them, sanctioning them, and oppressing them. This talk you're going to hear is an edited version of a talk Ramsey gave in 1998 at the Holman Methodist Church in Los Angeles. It's titled, Plutocracy, Wealth Governs This Country. And it's in my film, titled, What I've Learned About U.S. Foreign Policy. If you think it's been a long evening, <clears throat> wait till I get through. <laughs> but we're going to have to take some long evenings because this planet is deeply troubled and the greatest cause of that trouble is our own government. In the speech that James, Reverend James Lawson referred to that Martin Luther King made on April the 5th, 1967. The most startling thing that he said at the time, the thing that caused the most anger and hatred to be directed toward him, was this sentence. The greatest purveyor of violence on earth is my own government. 
31 years ago. Why anyone would have been startled is hard to say because it was an obvious fact, but apparently we need more education in the obvious than we do examination of the obscure and unknown. Last year, U.S. military expenditures, with all the suffering on the planet, all the sickness and hunger and ignorance and pain, the American military budget was $265 billion. The second largest government expenditure for militarism was $48 billion. And that was the Russian Federation. And the United States military expenditures exceed those of the top 12 government expenditures on Earth by themselves and are more than a third of all the military expenditures on the planet. We have a war party in this country, and we've had it all along. And you can call it Democrat for a while, you can call it Republican for a while, but it has been the special economic interests in this society that have governed us from the time that we founded our governments on this continent. And the people have never controlled those governments. We call ourselves the world's greatest democracy. We are absolutely a plutocracy. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Wealth governs this country. And wealth uses military violence to control the rest of the world as best it can. And we're responsible. And we will pay the price for it. If we don't control our violence, if we don't control the effect of the symbol of our glorification of violence, on our children and on the rest of the planet, uh, then this human species is going to be the first to destroy itself completely. And that's the road the United States government has put us on. The single most pertinent statement on this issue was by Henry Kissinger. When the Iran-Iraq war began, over a million very young men lost their lives in that. Henry Kissinger said at the beginning of the war, eight years of war, I hope they kill each other. And that was exactly our policy. What could be better? <laughs> Have them kill each other. Then who has to worry about that region anymore, you know? And don't think that's not exactly our policy. All over the world where there are poor peoples living today, that's the solution to overpopulation. Call it triage, whatever you want to call it. Let them kill each other, let them die. And they're dying all over Asia, Africa, and Latin America, where the masses of poor people live. They're expendable there as they are expendable here. As appalling as what we've done and what we've threatened to Iraq, the worst violence that all of our technology could unleash, and then the strangulation of the sanctions, the thing we have to realize is it's what our government leadership has been doing all along. It's not terribly different than how we addressed the folks that were here to meet the Mayflower standing on the dock, the North American Aboriginal peoples, the Indians as we call them. 
a long, steady course of destruction of those peoples. It's not terribly different than what we did to the slaves that were brought over and changed from Africa, those that survived the transit, which wasn't easy. You look in our history books, you don't read about a Philippine-American war. You read the Philippine history books, and they know about a Philippine-American war. We call it the Spanish-American war. We were liberating the Filipinos. We killed more than a million. Now we're bragging about the <coughs> covert actions we're going to engage in against Iraq. Do you doubt for a minute that they're planning covert actions in half a dozen other places right now? That we'll react to them five years after the misery has begun and the people have been devastated? What we have to realize is that if we don't stand up and stop this now, if we can't stop these sanctions in Iraq and if with them we can't prohibit any further use of sanctions that are designed to impact on the poor, then there are no poor people on the planet that will ever be safe from our government and its future acts. It's imperative that we stop them in Iraq today and that we prohibit them in the future as applied to any people because it is a weapon of mass destruction. We have to stop military interventions by our government completely. We cannot permit more U.S. military interventions in foreign countries. We have to stop economic interventions. We've got to cancel foreign debt that has enslaved most of the poor countries of the planet. Cancel it. So let's organize through every effort and opportunity we have in our families in our churches, in our mosques, in our synagogues, and in our schools, and at our jobs. A massive coalition committed to end militarism and economic exploitation by our government. Mickey Huff is a professor of social science, history, and journalism, chair of journalism, co-chair of history at Diablo, Valley College in California. He is director of the Media Watchdog uh, Project Censored and president of its parent nonprofit, the Media Freedom Foundation. Recently, he was co-author of The United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. And he's the co-editor of Project Censored's State of the Free Press 2021. Mickey, you're on. Thanks so much for, for having me. Um, uh, of course, Code Pink, Frank, Rachel, all of you, thanks so much for this very, very important, momentous, historic event itself about the significance of, of history. And so again, it's, so it's a real honor uh, to be here with so many wonderful people, many of whom I know um, and others whom I haven't met that I greatly admire. Um, you know, teaching history matters, and that's what I do. I'm sort of at the intersection of both history and journalism, recent historiography, and the importance of journalism, more specifically independent truth-telling journalism that speaks truth to power and speaks truth as power. And I'm gonna repeat again that teaching history matters. Um, censoring the truth during the US Cold War up to the present is the title of the brief presentation today. Um, so I'm gonna kind of pack in a number of things that, uh, that I think are pretty significant. Um, uh, William Faulkner once wrote that the past is never dead, it's not even past. And it's so important for us to acknowledge that. Um, Mark Twain quipped once upon a time um, that history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. 
Uh, and we are certainly in uh, a Dr. Seuss moment historiographically, never mind the fact that Dr. Seuss is back in the news for other reasons. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that maybe some other time. Um, you know, I'd also like to riff br uh, briefly here with a nod too to the Covert Action Quarterly folks. Um, you know, paraphrasing Ralph McGeehee, the great CIA whistleblower, today's fake news is tomorrow's fake history. And so yesterday's fake history frames today's fake news. <laughs> so this is a Cold War redux feedback loop, right? And um, what is fake news again? It's nothing new. It's misinformation. It's disinformation. It's propaganda. It's information control. And you go back to the 1960s, we recall the Grams over at the Washington Post. Um, yes, that's still the CIA paper of record with uh, Jeff Bezos and the $600 million cloud contract they've gotten. Um, uh, journalism is the first rough draft of history. Uh, and if that's the case, we really need to get it right the first time. And I don't mean with the disinformation that we saw in these legacy papers buttressing Cold War propaganda. I mean, you know, going back to George Seldes and I.F. Stone, meaning that the role of journalists is to tell the public what's actually going on. And if we do go back in our history and in the independent alternative annals of our past, we have long had truth tellers. We've long had people telling us what was happening, whether it's long before the Cold War, during or since in its next or new recent iteration. So, um, you know, the Cold War itself is sometime in the making, officially 45 years long, but the actual hostility toward Russia or communism or specifically long predates the Cold War. Um, the real reasons for our hostilities against civil rights and labor movements in the United States were long shrouded. Uh, it's been through xenophobia, fear of immigration, fear of taking jobs, fear of invasion, fear of rivals trying to threaten to take Americans' freedom. Um, none of those things have actually really been true. And this is why we need untold histories to be told with a nod to Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone, Peter earlier today um, speaking with everyone. So if you go back and follow this hostility rooted in US oppression against civil rights and labor movements, wage slavery, pro-capitalist plutocratic forces go way back before the Civil War. We heard that earlier today too with the abolitionist women and so on, really ramped up significantly with the Haymarket Massacre in 1886, right? There's a gross hostility towards labor rights and this type of actual freedom in our history. There's a strong anti-capitalist, um, uh, sort of fear that the establishment has that they want to cramp down. And so that predates the Cold War specifically. You know, we saw it during the, um, you know, working with the police at the Haymarket Square, working with private Pinkertons and places like Homestead and other places, all the way up through the beginning of the FBI, later COINTELPRO. Um, there's been a serious effort to control narratives and suppress narratives that don't jive with the fear, the fear mongering that takes place from the top down. And so, um, you know, the U.S. is, of course, in, involved not only in the suppression of critics during World War I at home, you know, but the U.S. also meddled in the Bolshevik Revolution, the whole first Red Scare that spawned the Soviet arc, right? Um, the hostility against people um, from Emma Goldman to presidential candidate socialists like Eugene Debs. Uh, the Espionage and Sedition Act largely aimed not just to suppress critics of World War I, but to suppress critics of pro-capitalism and to suppress any support for the Bolshevik Revolution. 
Um, you go, you know, this, by the way, is a story that's been told by filmmakers like Scott Noble, uh, just directed a brand new series called The War at Home that I highly recommend I wrote a review for, and you can see it at projectcensored.org. There are many folks, as I'm saying, that have talked about the history of suppression and the suppression uh, of the truth in our historiographic narratives. Um, but historically, you know, World War I was really a big kickoff. That's where we saw Eddie Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, working with the Creel Commission to fashion false narratives uh, against Germany at the time, but also those morphed into anti-Russia, anti-Soviet, anti-communism type narratives. Um, you know, if you go back and look what Bernays said in 1928, the conscious and intelligent manipulation and organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in, quote, democratic society, right? And it is this un, these uh, who, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the truling power of the country. It is they who pull the wires, which control the public mind. And it is from that period forward, right, that we will see this effort to control narratives, right? Where is it gone down the memory hole of the 1934 business plot to overthrow FDR, who claimed he saved capitalism at ATAs? He's not even a socialist, right? Uh, Smedley Butler, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history, warned us that war was a racket, not about democracy, not about liberation, but it was about, uh, about suppression of people's movements for actual freedom and economic uh, liberty. So, you know, this is a long-standing conflict that we see coming through the Great Depression. It led, of course, to, you know, the U.S., don't forget, during this period, supported, major corporations in the U.S. supported the rise of Hitler to power, supported the Nazis in Germany against the Soviet Union at the time. Um, and then, of course, we significantly ramped up our efforts against the Soviet Union again at the ending of World War II with the bombing of Japan, as Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone point out, uh, the betrayal of Henry Wallace and so forth. So we have a rich history that tells these stories, but we don't really get to teach it. Not enough people teach this, this history moving forward. And it's important that we do because the Cold War is a long period of our time that was marked by the murder of tens of millions of people, the suppression of the rights of millions of people at home, further collaboration with Nazis and neo-Nazis from Operation Paperclip all the way through with the Klan, all the way through the Obama-Biden administration with working with neo-Nazis in Ukraine. This is our untold history. After World War II, we get the second Red Scare under McCarthy, building off of the House Un-American Activities Committee, the ramping up of COINTELPRO, the suppression of anti-war and civil rights movement, the lies of the Gulf of Tonkin incident that Norm Solomon uh, eloquently points out in his work um, that he compares and con uh, compares with the WMD's lies. You know, again, there's been a long raft of propaganda suppression and lies that are all in maintenance of the US as a corporation, as a major global hegemon, right? Vietnam, one of the longest of those, uh, including the Kent State uh, oppression, the killing of people at Kent State. We see all the way through COINTELPRO, through the church committee hearings, only to re-kick off another kind of Cold War raft in the 1980s against uh, mostly uh, the Middle East and Latin and South America. Again, history may not repeat itself, but surely it seems to rhyme. The war on drugs is a big part of this, as we heard earlier, uh, and great truth tellers and whistleblowers like Gary Webb calling attention to that. We've only seen this uh, sort of get doubled down in the so-called war on terror era, where the same playbook has been used over and over and over to demonize countries, and Russia has been back in that playbook for the last decade. 
So I would like again to remind everybody that this this serious ramping up of the anti-Russia is a is a throwback to a Cold War that is not actually ended. We see it now with open threats against Russia, calling Putin a killer, which perhaps, of course, he is. But that doesn't exonerate the U.S. or NATO that have been further expanding and is responsible for the deaths of millions of people, uh, even since the so-called ending of the Cold War in Iraq, in the Middle East. These are real, serious, and ongoing problems that we really need to turn our attention to. The latest iteration of this in Russian meddling and this canard, I know will be addressed later by people like David Swanson, most recently by Matt Taibbi. Um, we really need to call on their face these bald-faced lies. We need to call them for what they are. We need to really support pro-democracy and freedom movements, not just at home, but abroad. And we need to not succumb to the fear-mongering of this third red scare, as we have called it and wrote, written about it in Counterpunch and the work we've done at Project Censored, continues to call out these bogus and false top-down narratives and maintenance of US power. So I know my time is up, but I'd like to remind us all that a better world is possible. Organizations that sponsored this event and put them on make it possible, but we can't do it without understanding our history. And in order to understand our history, we have to uncensor it and we need journalistic integrity in the present that goes back and resurrects that history so that we can have more contextualized narratives in the present that call out the current lies and propaganda moving forward. And with that, I'd like to thank all of you for all the amazing work you do. And you can follow more of our work at projectcensored.org. R G. Many thanks to all of you. Next, we have um, a super special guest. Uh, Medea will be speaking on her experience with the seeing the Cold War's effect on the African liberation struggles in Africa. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the group Code Pink, Women for Peace, and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She has been an advocate for social justice for more than 40 years. Medea writes books. She speaks at many anti-war events. She organizes and takes activists to other countries, and she has spoken out at government events, where she is often removed from the room for interrupting. But she is actually speaking truth to power. Medea? Like many of the other speakers, my life has really been shaped by the Cold War, including the Vietnam War. Uh, when I was in high school, I was taught that if we didn't stop communism over there, we would be fighting communism here at home. And then when my sister's boyfriend was drafted to go and fight in Vietnam, and he sent her home the ear of a Viet Cong as a souvenir, that's when I joined the anti-war movement, which I have never left. Uh, my government's hatred of communism really uh, inspired me to learn more about it, not just by reading the books of Marx and Lenin, uh, but also first as a hippie and later as a UN nutritionist and an economist, uh, traveling the world in support of liberation and socialist struggles. And everywhere I went, I was devastated to find that my own government with supporting the most reactionary forces that were trying to quash any of these experiments. This was especially true in Africa, where anti-communism and US corporate interests colored virtually every aspect of US policy. Take, for example, the Congo, formerly a colony of Belgium, where the liberation leader, Patrice Lumumba, scared the US corporations they feared they would lose access to the nation's vast minerals. Uh, they accused him of being close to the Soviets. And in 1961, the US government helped orchestrate a coup 
in which he was killed and replaced with the dictator, Mobuto Sesi Seku, who robbed the nation's resources, ruled over the people brutally for three decades. Anti-communism put the U.S. in bed with the despicable apartheid government in South Africa, the brutal Portuguese colonial rulers in Angola, Mozambique, and Ibasau, the white minority government of Ian Smith in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which only yielded to majority rule in 1980. I worked in uh, Africa for much of the uh, latter part of the 70s and into the uh, early part of the 80s, and I saw firsthand the devastation of the Cold War. I want to give the example when I went to work in Mozambique. Mozambique had just won its independence in 1975 after a long, grueling armed struggle. But there was elation that they were building something new, something exciting, something different. The president was Samora Machel. His wife was Grasa Machel, who later married Nelson Mandela after Machel died in a mysterious plane crash. But Samora Machel was a terrific leader. He used to be a nurse. He left nursing to join the liberation struggle and fight with the movement for Limo. After independence, I remember he would gather thousands of people together every single week in the sports stadium. And first they would start out singing with five-part harmony. Uh, and then he would give long talks and have discussions with the people and empower them about building a new society. The Portuguese had been among the worst, well, the worst colonizers in the world. They left a totally impoverished nation with a 95% illiteracy rate. Frilimo's motto was, each one teach one, and everywhere you looked, under the trees, under the rooftops, in the evenings, in the schools, people would teach each other how to read and write, how to add and, sub add and subtract. I was working as a nutritionist, and every day we work with farmers in the fields to increase yield so they could better feed the people. Everywhere there was tremendous excitement. We were building a new society, becoming a model for the rest of Africa, a model of cooperation, overcoming tribal differences, liberating women, empowering youth. But this cooperative model of empowered black citizens was a threat to US allies in the white-ruled South Africa and Rhodesia. They labeled the Mozambican government communist, and began funding an armed opposition movement called Reynamo. Reynamo began to attack villages. They burned entire villages, raped women, took them as sex slaves. They forced children to become soldiers. In fact, a third of their forces were children. They destroyed hospitals, roads, schools, any infrastructure that existed. This war lasted for 15 years. About a million people were killed or starved. 5 million displaced. The US government's own study said, a large number of civilians in these attacks were victims of purposeful shooting deaths and executions, of axing, killing, bayoneting, burning to death, forced drowning and asphyxiation, and other forms of murder where no meaningful resistance or defense is present. This sounds very much like the extremist forces terroring Mozambicans today who call themselves followers of ISIS and publicly behead women and children. One can make the argument that the breakdown of society during Renamo's long, brutal war paved the way for the devastating attacks today. 
While Africa continues to feel the consequences of the last Cold War, it's also the site of competition today between the United States and China. China is expanding its influence by building infrastructure and making investments all over the continent, including buying up land. The US is building military bases and beefing up AFRICOM. But if you want to see a real example of solidarity with Africa, look at the poor, small island nation of Cuba. While working in Africa, I met Cubans all over the continent. They weren't exploiting the resources or profiting from business ventures or building up military bases. No, some of them were there as soldiers to stop right-wing forces, but most of them, over 100,000 Cubans, went to Africa working as much needed doctors, nurses, teachers, technicians, and living in some of the poorest villages on the continent. And tens of thousands of African youth were invited to Cuba to study for free, becoming doctors, engineers, and other professionals. Most recently, Cuban doctors and nurses have been traveling around the continent, treating people for COVID and stopping its spread. It's amazing that this impoverished island nation of 11 million people battered by the United States for 60 years as part of the Cold War exemplifies such a beautiful example of solidarity. As Mozambique's first president, Samora Michel, said back in 1975, international solidarity is not an act of charity. It's an act of unity between allies fighting on different terrains towards the same objectives. The foremost of these objectives, he said, is to aid the development of humanity to the highest level possible. Let us practice solidarity by working hard to shut down AFRICOM and US bases now littered across the continent. Let us work together with our African neighbors to fight COVID and other diseases, end hunger at home and abroad, and address the climate crisis that's creating million of African, millions of African refugees. As Samora Michelle ended every talk with the people, a luta continua, victoria es certa. The struggle continues, victory is certain. Thank you. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break with Is It For Freedom by Sarah Thompson. Rulers of the nations as you fuss and fight over who owns this or that and who has the right to design, build, sell, and store and fire all the bombs and guns to defend your holy empire. There are children hungry, children sick and dying. There are mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers crying They're only pawns in your play of power and corruption Slowly starve them your new weapon of mass destruction And prove to me, America, that you care 
That was Sarah Thompson with Is It For Freedom? Welcome back. I'm Emily Dorrell of Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. We will now continue with our show on the Cold War Truth Commission. Uh, our next uh, testifier uh, is Jody Evans, and thank you so much for being here. She is the co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, and campaign coordinator for China is Not Our Enemy. She has been a visionary advocate for peace for several decades. Whether in boardrooms or war zones, legislative offices or neighborhood streets, Jody's enthusiasm for a world at peace infuses conciliation, optimism, and activism wherever she goes. And she's a very, very generous woman who opens up her home to have the Code Pink LA meetings there. Very much appreciated. Jody, your testimony. Thank you for inviting me uh, to talk about China and their history. I want to start with a little Vijay Prashad, who also warns that something gets lost in calling it a Cold War. Instead of naming it as an aggression directed from the US foreign policy that desires to rule the world. So call it by its name, barbaric imperialism. I was living part time in China before COVID changed our capacities to travel. And living there made me hyper aware of the propaganda of hate and lies that was flowing from scores of media sources toward China. It felt very familiar to the early days of the push for war in Iraq. That propaganda has already brought a war against Asians in the streets of the United States. This is a truth commission and there has been so much truth and beauty shared today. I want to start by saying the names of the victims of the war that happened on the anniversary of the Meilai massacre. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Jung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Yong A. Ye, Delania Ashley Yon, Paul Andre Michaels, Chaoji Tan, Dayo Feng. May you rest in peace and love. There have been over 3,000 other attacks that have taken place in the last year, and Code Pink has been raising concerns about the Asian hate this propaganda is driving. So that the desire to crush China is not new, and we in the United States know little about China, so that's my offering today. The opposite of hate is love, which is compassion, and to be with another is to know a bit about them. We think of ourselves as affluent in the US, but we are impoverished Americans in our understanding of the world. Imperialist desires to own China go back to the opium wars of 1839. It starts with England wanting to dismantle China after raping and pillaging India. 
This is also the first invasion of Afghanistan control the region by European powers. So let's begin with the awareness that China has experienced imperialist terror for a very long time. Before the Opium Wars, in 1837, China represented 25% of global GDP, and Beijing was larger than London. After World War II in 1949, China represented 5% global GDP and was one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. In China, World War II started in 1937 with the Marco Polo Bridge incident the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. This is when the axis between Germany, Italy, and Japan were executing their plan to hit the Soviet Union from the East and West and crush China to take over the world. Before 1939, you can read in US foreign policy documents that they hoped Germany would take out Soviet Union and Japan would take out China. It's interesting to note that at this time, both the US and Germany are giving military to support to the KMT in China. And Goebbels, who's a big supporter of Chiang Kai-shek, also had um, Chiang Kai-shek's son working for him in Germany. What few Americans know is that many Chinese died, as many Chinese died as Russians in World War II. They say around 27 million Soviets died and over 20 million Chinese died. There was also barbaric scientific research and biological warfare that was carried out on the Chinese by Japanese. At a museum in Harbin, China, there are photos of Japanese science literally executing barbaric acts, um, in, infecting living human beings with this biological warfare and leaving them standing in meadows until they succumb to the effects and then burying them there. Those scientists went back to become the leading scientists in Japan. I bring this up in light of the quad Blinken gathered this week to remind us these alliances have a long history and how China might feel toward Japan. Another atrocity most Americans are not aware of is the rape of Nanjing in 1937, which also came to light in a war crimes tribunal, but that was in 1947. As we heard earlier, there was no need to drop the atomic bombs on Japan as surrender was near. This was also true in China, Nanjing had surrendered, but the Japanese entered. And in the next six weeks, somewhere between 300,000 were beheaded, raped, and subjected to barbaric violence. The loss of life close to that of the dropping of atomic bombs. Between the time of the Opium Wars and the Korean War, 100 million Chinese died in war at the hands of Europeans, American, Japanese, and internal civil wars. A century of invasion and violence, in 1949, China was 450 million citizens. That means more than 15% of their population had died. Just imagine that. They know this as the century of humiliation. Then China gets pulled into the US war on Korea. The barbarism and insanity of the US war on Korea is wretched and also not well known. I encourage you to follow the women cross the DMZ as this is another violence against humanity by US foreign policy. But it was also a huge price paid by China. None of the generals in China wanted to support the Workers' Party of North Korea. They knew it was a bloodbath that no one could win and preferred to wait until the US was at their borders where they felt they could be more defensive. They are defensive in temperament and training. But Mao had a commitment to internationalism, a commitment to others 
Who are you if you abandon your friends, those who have stood with you? He knew it was a big risk and it could have been the end of China. It was the end of his son who died in the battles with the US and North Korea, a huge and painful price. China had no tanks and no airplanes and this was a loss of another million people. Here is when Sino-US relations fall apart because of China's support of the Workers' Party in Korea. And when it's over, the US sanctions against China are launched and also they block China from becoming a member of the UN. My friend Georgia Kelly at Praxis for Peace Institute had security clearance in the 60s working on war papers at Stanford, where she read the intention of the US to isolate Afghanistan, Shenzhen, Tibet, Hong Kong, and Taiwan as tools to take over China. These reports start back in the 50s. Shenzhen has long been under the effects of US infiltration, including a request to the King of Saudi Arabia to bring Wahhabism to the Uyghurs, something the King even spoke about as strange. There was a plan to take over China, and we saw in these documents later a question, who lost China? Imperialist language in itself, as if they owned it priorly. Um, they felt that because Mao didn't like Stalin, they could do what they always do as um, colonialists, divide and conquer. But here's where American foreign policy failed. Also, the British had wanted Tibet since the end of the 1800s, invading Tibet in an attempt to pull it away from China. But they were not interested in national liberation for the Tibetan people, but colonizing them, then Tibet, a theocracy um, with slaves. The infiltration of Tibet by the CIA is what provoked China's pushback. The CIA Tibetan program was a nearly two decades long anti-Chinese covert operation focused on Tibet, which consisted of political action, propaganda, paramilitary and intelligence operations based on US government arrangements made with the brothers of the 14th Dalai Lama. And it states to keep the political concept of an autonomous Tibet alive within Tibet. This ended with Nixon's visit to China. Taiwan, there's no dispute, is Chinese territorial, um, under Chinese territorial control. But the US wants to use Taiwan as a base for military engagement and economic interests. Basically, it's Miami next to China. China's stuck. It can't allow US missiles sitting in Taiwan. How long did JFK allow Cuba to keep those missiles? You know, China sees it has 1.5 billion citizens to take care of, and it is not going to sit back and let US aggression bring military presence closer to China. Cold War. This is part of a bigger international issue, and we've heard a bit about this today, but if the US crushes China, it cripples the fight of people of the global south for possibly centuries. It cuts off progress for other ways to live together on this planet, and for many would cut off hope for the human race and life on Earth. A wave came from the West and destroyed everything, lives, culture, community, connectivity, and the health of the planet. We live in the dark times of this effect. We live in the belly of this beast. We need the wind that comes from the East to rebuild infrastructure and heal and create peace. European white maritime expansion started in 1492 to today with 500 years of European terror and white supremacy. Yet there was a Silk Road based on trade instead of war. 
not the Europeans' concept of trade, which was slave trade, but the exchanging of wares and creation. It is what we see from China, an extension of the Silk Road, the question of how do we construct trade in a mutually beneficial way. Under the leadership of the CPC, China is the only country in recent decades that has become the world's second largest economy without resorting to warfare, colonialism, or slavery. For more than 10 consecutive years, China has contributed to over 30% of global GDP growth. 850 million people have been lifted out of poverty. China is the second largest contributor to the UN and has sent more than 40,000 UN peacekeeping personnel outnumbering other permanent members of the Security Council. The CPC also enjoys the highest rate of support and satisfaction from the Chinese people, over 90% according to the latest Harvard study. Another fact about China is it has had strong central government for 2,200 years with a responsibility to society and a concern for the whole. So let us call this what it is, another boondoggle for the Pentagon and the weapons industry to distract, destabilize, destroy, and clean out the funds in the US needed to invest in a functioning society. We must change the narrative. No money for war. Funds need to be redirected to the needs of the people. Cut military spending, at least in security, death, and destruction. Yes to respecting human rights, starting with our own behaviors. We must not be used by the propaganda. It is being directed at the progressives and the lefts. We cannot spread hate. We must spread compassion. We cannot spread lies, but truth. We at Code Pink are here to help with tools, actions, and teachings. You can find them at Code Pink's China is not our enemy. We have to be fierce in the face of Biden's foreign policy, as it is still mostly Trump's. Um, so we have another testimony, uh, and that will be from Carly Town. Hey, Carly. Carly is the co-director of Code Pink and coordinates the Defund the Pentagon program. Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Rachel, and thanks everyone um, for being here this afternoon or this evening, wherever you are. Um, and, you know, I thanks so much for that wonderful introduction and, and good to see you as well, Chris. Um, so as, as Rachel said, my name is Carly Town. I'm co-director of Code Pink. Um, I work on our Divest from the War Machine campaign, which works to divest our schools, our cities, our politicians, and other financial institutions from the war machine. Um, I wanna thank everyone again for putting on this amazing event. Um, today I'm gonna to talk a little bit about an important legacy of the Cold War, um, which is military spending. Um, so with that, I wanna talk about um, current levels of US military spending in the United States. Right now the United States spends more than the next 10 nations combined on our Pentagon budget. You can see that there. Um, some important things about this. Um, it's important to note that the category of quote unquote defense in budget accounting doesn't include programs that would probably be classified as part of spending on national security. So most obviously, right, those are separate accounts for the Department of Homeland Security, um, the Department of Veterans Affairs. So when we look at a graphic like this and you see that number, it's important to understand that doesn't even capture the entirety of US spending on militarized programs within the United States. Okay, so 
we see how much more we spend on the Pentagon budget compared to other countries, right? So I wanted to explore a little bit about the Pentagon budget a little more. So in 2021, right, the Pentagon budget is $740 billion, which means if we break that down, we'll spend over a million dollars a minute on the Pentagon in 2021. So by the time I'm done with this presentation, probably $10 million. Half of that budget will go directly to private quote unquote defense contractors, including weapons companies like Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, which represents a huge increase in spending on private defense contractors um, since 2001 alone. So that's, that's the Pentagon budget today. We dedicate so much of the Pentagon budget to creating and maintaining weapons that the US military sends quote unquote excess military grid weaponry to local police forces through something called the 1033 program. And the 1033 program was created in the 1990s during the, the quote unquote war on drugs and has since transferred over $7.4 billion that we know of in excess property, including weapons to local police forces. And you see that photo there um, is from a protest from this summer um, in, in Miami. Um, where a police officer watches from an armored vehicle. So, you know, I think that these numbers are shocking, right? And at the end of the day, really demonstrate what our real priorities are as a nation. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important to put them into a broader context, right? When I say $740 billion on the Pentagon budget, you know, you can see here just 10% of that could help end um, homelessness in the United States, right? Something Chris was mentioning. 20% of that could make public college tuition free for two years. 50% of the Pentagon budget could end world hunger by 2030, right? So within that context, it's really important to understand how do we get to this point where our budget priorities are so skewed, right? And today, right, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how we can't talk about our current military spending without understanding it as part of the many legacies of the Cold War, right? This is really, really important. Um, so, you know, many current discussions about the US military budget begin around the early 2000s, right? During the beginning of the so-called War on Terror. Um, you'll see that uh, first pink um, uh, arrow there pointing to that. But if we take uh, defense spending historically in a, in a broader context, Current spending on defense and nuclear weapons, um, nuclear weapons, the latter, um, is under the auspices of the Department of Energy, actually exceeds levels during the Korean War, the Vietnam War, um, and the Reagan buildup in, in the 1980s, which I also pointed out in the graph there with that pink arrow. Um, but also, we need to understand that US nuclear capability um, has primarily been motivated by and justified by um, right after World War II, a parallel buildup um, in the Soviet Union. The Vietnam War was often justified by reference to the domino theory that through Vietnam, of course, right, communism would spread to the rest of Southeast Asia. That was the domino theory. And after the end of World War II, if you go to the final um, arrow there, you can see a sharp increase in military spending which has not dipped below spending levels in the post-war period of the 1950s since, right? So while we see a, a large uptick in military spending um, during the so-called war on terror, you have to look back historically to see when this large uptick in military spending really started and has since not dipped below, right? So that's really important.
Another thing that's an important legacy of the Cold War, um, U.S. military bases around the world, of course, right, really serve as a physical testament to the legacy of U.S. military buildup um, during and, and, and after the Cold War. So I think this is another really important legacy that we have to remember when we talk about current levels of Pentagon spending to put it into that historical context. So all of this, I think, can be um, a little bit overwhelming. Understanding the enormity of the Pentagon budget can really feel that way. Um, but I think it's also important for us today to recognize that the tide is turning. Um, you know, we're officially a little over one year into a really devastating public health crisis um, that is really wreaking havoc on the lives of million, millions of people across the globe and in the United States. Um, and many people are really waking up to the fact that we can't continue the failed strategy of pouring hundreds of billions into the Pentagon budget while we underfund things like public health programs, the Green New Deal, that sort of thing, right? Um, so I also just wanted to end with a quick, what can we do, right? It's not, not all doom and gloom. So a recent study from the Security Policy Reform Institute found a direct correlation between contributions from the defense industry and voting to maintain or increase military spending, right? We all know that that link is there, but there's a study now showing that. And at Code Pink, we're calling on everyone to reach out to their congressional representatives to sign the Code Pink pledge to commit to stop taking campaign contributions from weapons companies. It's a very simple pledge. It's a really great way to start talking to your local congressional representative. And if they say no, that they're unwilling to stop taking campaign contributions from weapons makers, that's a really important piece of information for you and, and for activists in your area. I also wanted to mention, you know, the importance of this pledge. Uh, the Security Policy Reform Institute also recently did a study of every Congress member who has signed our pledge to divest from war, who has also voted unanimously to move funds from the Pentagon to the people, right? So this is, again, a really important tool um, that I'd love for people to uh, check out. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Until next time. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink